The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This episode is a compliment to my upcoming retreat called Ritual and Practice for the Urban Homestead, happening at Hollyhock Lifelong Learning Center in September 2018 on Cortez Island, BC. It's a five-day gathering to process earth grief and climate anxiety and to learn rituals of self and community care that build the resilience required to live in troubled times. For more information, go to hollyhawk.ca and search for Ritual and Practice for the Urban Homestead. My guest today is Tiffany Joseph. I met Tiffany at a language revitalization workshop and I was so drawn to her for several reasons. Not only was she clearly gifted at language learning, but also at both visual and oral storytelling. Over time, I learned that Tiffany is also an astrologer, videographer, early childhood educator, habitat and land rehabilitation activist, a cultural revitalist, and I would say a knowledge keeper. Plus, she's a wife and mother to three children. To me, all of those activities are important for collapse resilience, and I wondered if Tiffany thought about it that way too. Over 90 minutes, I was gifted with many stories and ways of thinking about these things. We met for this conversation at my office on the territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, commonly known as Victoria, B.C. So, Tiffany, what identities do you lead with? Um, It's easy if I just kind of introduce myself how I normally introduce myself when I am in a circle or... um, uh, when I have to do a territory acknowledgement. So, Tiffany Joseph, then the snit. Just let us in at Satanich, eat at Hopmish, Halisin at Jaslasp eight lungs, Halilatsin at Homolchistin Ochomilch, Ina Joseph, then a Tain, Patrick Joseph, then a Main, Yvonne, Schananast, then a Sila Lat. Willard Joseph, Thanasila La, Diwanamat, Thanasila, E. Tsuhi Halachap, Thanasila La. So I said, My name is Tiffany Joseph. I am Hussetnichen's Hopish. Um, I live in Huchasasp and I grew up in Humachsin Ochumioch, which is um, Capilano Reserve. Um, and Hujasasp is Sartlip, First Nation, Sartlip Reserve. Um, and that's on Brentwood Bay, known as Brentwood Bay. Homolchistan um, is known as Capilano Reserve. In It's like right on the border of North and West Vancouver, right under Lionsgate Bridge. Um, my mother and father are Patrick and I and Joseph. Um, my grandparents are late Yvonne and late Willard Joseph. Um, her maiden name was Paul, with two L's. My grandmother is Geraldine um, Underwood, and my late grandfather is George Underwood. Um, my my grandmother's maiden name is Thorne, and she's from Cowichan. So when we introduce ourselves in Coast Salish territory, we always, it's like 
essential to name your parents and your grandparents and for some people your great-grandparents um, so they know who you are and where you come from what family you come from um, one of my teachers in life um, her name is Chowanis and she has a Sinchothan name that was given to her it's Chitmuch it's owl in our language um, she um, always says like she's like I know who I gotta talk to you know if you if you say something I know who I gotta talk to and that's that's what it's about um, for our accountability for the words and the way we care, carry ourselves in the world um, those are the people they'll know if they know who my parents and grandparents are like okay I, don't, I might not know her mom but I know her auntie and I'm gonna go tell her auntie what's up and what's up might be Tiffany's out hanging out late at the mall or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. yeah. I've, I've, we're, we're concerned about her bringing her back into the fold, is it, yeah. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Or it could be good things. Mm-hmm. Tiffany and so-and-so were making eyes at each other. <laughs> they might, yeah, could be a liaison happening. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm really struck by um, something that sounds very fortunate for you that uh, the intermarriages all seem to be through um, tribes, nations, uh, bands that probably traded quite a lot. And like, these are all like geographically quite close. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like, you know, you're not like, oh, I have Anishinaabe and, you know, you have like all Coast Salish peoples in your lineage. That's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of realized that when I was young, like, so my father, both of his parents are Squamish, even that in terms of like, for anyone who knows anything about the Indian Act and st- being a status Indian and membership codes, like that in itself is quite a privilege. Um, but even before I was thinking about that, um, although I was thinking about that early on, I will say. Well, um, yeah, that's pretty young. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, just that ancestral connection to a place, um, or to a territory I should say and which really if you look at the way we the way we name countries like this Klopish country it really is a country um, if you think about it Um, but we call them territories Um, you know having that very strong connection and then her my grandma's I don't know if it's her mother or grandmother is from Darcy which is still not very far from Squamish Nation territory. It's like mm-hmm. Liltwat territory, yeah. who are our neighbors. And, you know, they're my family mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're so closely related through my grandmother's mother or grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, st- it's so close. And that's why when it comes to, like, ecosystems and um, place and territory and acknowledging territory, like, it's so important to me not because of any political thing, but because, like, like I can be from different families and different nations, yet they're so close, and that's, like, there's a sacredness to that. There's a beauty to that. There's, um, con- like, those nations, the way we look at what separates them is really the ecology of a place. The interior Salish people, the Liotwat people that side of my ancestry the way they dried fish was wind drying fish 
But you can accomplish that in Coast Salish territory. <laughs> Down in Squamish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's too wet. Yeah. You know? And that's just, it's literally the difference of, like, kilometers. Mm-hmm. It's the literally the difference of, like, walking a path. Mm-hmm. But they're already in a rain shadow. Mm-hmm. And we're previous to the rain <laughs> shadow starting. So that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, my ancestors lived in pit houses, but I'm imagining that my Skotmish ancestors quit that um, because of water changing. Mm-hmm. You know, you to live in a pit house, you can't be digging into a water table. Exactly. Yeah. And now that you couldn't do that in a lot of our territory because you'd find yourself in water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very quickly. I found that interesting too. Um, just over time, you know, uh, the tradition of the drum, it's, it seems pervasive, right? We associate drumming with uh, First Nations and Indigenous ceremony. Uh, but you only have to own a drum uh, living close to uh, the rainforest, you know, to realize like, wow, this thing is dull all the time. (laughs) So uh, I remember seeing images of um, uh, people where the cedar is in the ground and they were banging on the cedar to make the percussive rhythm, but it wasn't necessarily always with leathers and things like that. Because if that would that that only makes sense in like a certain very specific context, or you'd have to keep it by the fire all the time, or something like that. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, the subtleties and the nuance of this, like this, the 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 ecosystem really determines what your sacred tools are going to be, and and um, there can be trade, and that's special, but doesn't necessarily mean that like oh, that's from that tradition. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you um, about your approach and your, just hear your thoughts on climate change and um, the social turbulence that comes. Uh, we're living in a time where ecosystems are collapsing. And when I think about indigenous cultures in North America, catastrophic collapse is very fresh. And in fact, it's still a living experience in many ways and in many ways you're in the recovery phase. Um, and I think that for most settlers and certainly most white settlers, our memory of catastrophic collapse like that is way farther back. You know, we might have loss or displacement, but I mean, we don't have a history, a recent history of genocidal policies uh, from, you know, government being passed down. So when I think about what we as, I as a white settler can learn from indigenous communities about collapse is something about adaptation. Of course, resilience and all of that, but adaptation to me is like understanding what the technical needs are, <laughs> you know, like really knowing the ecosystem or observing how it's changing. And so I'm just curious, when you think about what uh, what advantages you might have having this very recent knowledge um, when it comes to preparing for different kinds of converging emergencies and the slow collapse of imperialist empire that you're waiting out. <laughs> what would you say are some of the contributions that um, 
that white settler culture might want to sit up and pay attention to? Um, <clears throat> so when it comes to like collapse and things like that, um, uh, I often say that people come to Coast Salish territory. I don't often use that term, but I will um, at this point in time um, because um, knowing what I know about my land um, and what I was taught about my land through many teachers um, growing up in Skultmish, um all my language teachers um, all the singers and how they would share things that their elders shared with them and uh, all the shaker ministers um, our territory of Skultmish um, when you you know a lot of there's some oral tradition that's shared but a lot of these things we have to access through um, things that anthropologists or linguists had um, conversations that they had and documented with our elders as well um, a lot of people have the same stories that were recorded with these anthropologists and stuff but you know they might have forgotten or they didn't write it down so therefore you know they didn't have um, that specific story um, it would have to be somehow remembered at some point in time but um, example like uh, Sanak uh, I was told Sanak which is Kitsilano was a place where many other Coast Salish nations would come to find master canoe builders so you know there's a strength there of that place of building canoes um, of economy mm. um and each place um, would have been known for certain things. So this would this village would be known for its clams, and this place would be known for um, you know mass, creating master weavers. And when I talk about nations and those concepts, like a lot of these things are like familial. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may it would make me think, okay, what family would have or what families would have belong to Sanak what families would have belonged to Aslahan or Humalchistan um, and what drew them to those relationships with those animals which are food right mm-hmm. when it comes to things like clams or whatever and um, you know that there's there's a strength that comes through that relationship but also the plants as medicines that would be in each place um and a lot of people, I was told, would come to Skhopmish to for the, the medicines that existed in our land. Mm. And so I knew that that was the ancestral history of the land um, that I came from. And I just felt very honored, humbled, and blessed and hoped I could one day understand that medicine in a very deeply spiritual, emotional way that is necessary to work with, med- with medicine that is does not exist in western medicine Mm -hmm. um um and also i came to a realization that people are still coming to our territory for medicine Hmm. like that doesn't change the 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 nature of a place does not change Mm -hmm. um so would you say uh, 
do you mean if we if we put this in kind of the like modern like help my colonialist mind understand? <laughs> you mean like people still are drawn to the west coast and maybe they don't know why but there's something about the land that's medicine and you actually happen to know that it's because there's literally medicine <laughs> in the land is yeah. that what you mean yeah mm. but also it's like like spirit it's spirit right mm-hmm. like the the spirit of the land is medicine mm-hmm. and there it's just tuning in right but even then like subconsciously all these elderly people are coming to like retire here they're like oh i'm not feeling too well where am i gonna mm-hmm. where am i gonna feel better mm-hmm. and they're like oh coast salish territory mm-hmm. and of course you know um talking about adaptation you know people are trying to adapt to old age mm. but they're not trying to adapt to the land mm-hmm. it, that's the kind of thing that um that came to mind when i was like thinking about you know you talked about adaptation and like you know people immigrating to turtle island was adaptation however what was missing was creating a relationship with the indigenous peoples here um getting to understand the land and the medicine of the land the spirit of the land um everything that existed here you know that part was missing um and you know i didn't grow up with I grew up with the privilege of a lot of stories being shared in community, but I didn't have any directly from my family, like, spoken to me. Um, and also, like, I always I, I always say this to you. <laughs> like, I grew up playing Super Nintendo, playing Nintendo. Um, I didn't grow up harvesting berries or um, fishing or any of that. Um, I grew up in a very urbanized way. Um, so I really had to, um, I was always thinking about my life and how I was living it and like how it was so disconnected from my ancestors and how I really felt it was impossible, um, because I really felt like people didn't see value in our way of life, even our own people, of course, being extremely traumatized. Like that was the intention of residential school, Mm -hmm. like kill the Indian within the child. Mm -hmm. So, you know it's a lot of violence to to make us believe that and it's pretty if anyone's ever been abused if anyone's ever experienced PTSD from relationships like it's pretty effective mm-hmm. way of hurting someone and making them not believe mm-hmm. so a lot of what i had to do was heal that mentality that indigenous people you know what the way that it, they connect to land like there's no value there mm-hmm. that's what colonization is is like right. destroying indigeneity mm-hmm. and remembering that like the word indigenous in the latin etymology is like sprung from the land mm-hmm. so um all human beings connection to the land like the the goal of colonization is like let's forget that land matters mm-hmm. and i think we all have an ancestor of course, my ancestors, my ancestors are just like, not. It's not very far. I still have ancestors alive, yeah. you know, who are like the land. We need yeah. to have a connection to the land, yeah. and I've restored that within myself. I'm like, I need connection to the land, you know. Uh-huh. Like I'm here now. Mm-hmm. It just took a lot of healing from trauma mm-hmm. to get here, but um, everyone has an ancestor who had that connection to land that knowing of like we take care of land 
we have a relationship with land and it takes care of us and like that extremely nourishing experience of having that connection uh, unfortunately for Europe, European people it might have to go centuries or millennia back yeah. depending on what family you're from right mm. like I don't remember which teacher if it was maybe Maladoma Somme or maybe Daniel Four, but somebody just said it in a really articulate way for like white folk like me that it it was like you have you might have to think back a thousand years so it's beyond remembered names but everybody had an ancestor who lived and died on the same land as everyone they knew who had lived and died and so there's like something so precious about that when every single thing in the land is infused with every one of your ancestors so we we do all have that and um and i definitely have felt as i develop and cultivate right relationship with the spirits of place and the land that I live on. I'm, I live on Lekwungen speaking territory um, in English known as Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations uh, and that has been so transformative the, the very felt um, kinship and the amount of like sacrifice for me to live and have like clean water and a productive garden and all of that has been really remarkable. The next thing that I had personally gone to was uh, the language of my ancestors, so in my case, Scots Gaelic. And um, you have spent quite a lot of your time, and I imagine this has been quite healing as well, but it seems like language and you uh, undertaking deep study in both academic and personal uh, ways of your traditional languages is that something that you think is also like why language in terms of being um resilient or adaptive why is that an important thing to uh hold on to and conserve and save as much as you can and and revitalize as much as you can um my entire life um my teachers um had said um our language comes from the land. Like all my Skolmish teachers, they said our language comes from the land. And I came here to Sinchothan territory, speaking territory, which is, you know, my mom's land that she came from. Um, same thing. It's just something we've always said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why they, um, when they punished, um, when they punish children in residential school, that's why they pierce their tongues and hurt their tongues. Because mm-hmm. it's like, if you can forget that, then you're going to forget your connection to the land because you won't be able to speak to the land. You won't be able to speak to the cedars. Um, and uh, the our language, especially Sanchothan, like I, my Skoltmish language, I haven't learned in the same way I've learned Sanchothan. Um, I've, I learned Skoltmish language from preschool up to grade 10. So that's 11, 12 years, um, of my life. And that's why I'm able to make these sounds like Skoltmish. Like, (laughs) um, it's very subtle for the listeners who can't quite get it. It's like this (laughs) glottal kind of thing is happening and it's rolling out. It might sound like a whistle. Like, there's a lot of complex sounds yeah. happening there. Yeah, a lot of people can't do the k back there. Yeah. They can't do the k. And there's different, there's like, like, yeah. the people are like, what is, what are you what doing? Are and like, the for? hardest sound for people to do is, yeah, yeah. Um, 
It's kind of like when Ernie laughs. <laughs> in Sesame Street. Yeah. Are you getting it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I usually tell people, like, I'll try to explain it in a very technical way. I'm like, put your tongue, the tip of your tongue, on the roof of your mouth, behind your teeth. Don't put it on your teeth, behind your teeth. And then people just kind of can't help but put it on their teeth. And I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the next best way I can, I can explain it is, like, when... Because that's how I... That's my place of articulation. There's other people who do it on the sides of their mouths. Like, that's how my cousin does it. I'm just like, that seems impossible to me. (laughs) But um, the best way I can describe it is, like, when someone describes how a lisp sounds. Um, Yeah. Then that's that's how you could probably articulate. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for all your... You always are doing this, but thank you for clarifying and teaching and uh, for helping my my settler mind get unsettled. I really appreciate it. So I cut you off. You were saying that you studied uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, it was different. You know, I was, I was a kid. Um, it really helped me shape the way I make those sounds, which I'm extremely grateful for. Um, but there was a lot more when I started learning Sinchothan, a lot more emphasis on roots, the roots of words, because that's how my cousin understands the language and Bill's language, and that's because that's how his uncle really um, helped him understand language, our Sinchothan language. Um, so the word I've been talking about a lot is chleop, and chleop means to heal, but it also means to escape. And... Um, that's very fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's very compelling, both <laughs> to heal and to escape. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And um, Mountain is our place of refuge as Kusetnich people. Um, when we had a flood in our territory, um, there was the only thing that we could see was the tip of Slewongoch Mountain, which had an arbutus tree on top of it which we tied our canoes to with cedar rope. So um, Kosalish artist, Kosalish artist Charles Elliott, whenever he does a totem pole carving or house post carving, um, he always has cedar rope at the bottom to acknowledge that story, that history, and our connection, like how the Arbutus tree saved us, but also the technology of the cedar rope t- saved us as well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, so is in it is in today it is a place of healing for us um, in the story is a place of refuge for us um, I'm sure it will be again at some point a place of refuge for us when collapse happens yeah, and sea level rise because uh, Sartlip Nation is right like you, that land is right in Brentwood Bay, right? Like it's at the water. So I don't know exactly. I mean, I know that sea level is affected differently depending on um, the land formations. But um, generally in Canada, they didn't put the reserves in like the prime real estate, right? <laughs> it's like probably in a danger zone, I would imagine. Have you looked at what sea level rise will do to your home reserve? No, I haven't. Mm. But um, yeah, we're just, we're right on the water. I like can walk down to the beach from um, my husband's family's property. So 
Um, Beautiful right now, but in case of big flood again, you guys have the stories of where to go, Yeah, which is nice. When I was growing up, my aunt would always say that the elders, she's like, you know, the elders say we're stupid for not having canoes in our, like, on our roofs. She's Hmm. like, one day it's, like, it's going to happen again. We're going to have a flood again, and we need canoes on our roofs to, like, make sure we'll be safe. And, um... Meanwhile, she doesn't have a canoe on her roof. <laughs> right, but she's passing along vital information. <laughs> she's like, I don't plan to survive, but right. <laughs> for you fools, you are going to try. You might want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So would you say you think personally very much about collapse? Or like we, are, we also live on the Cascadia Fault. So uh, I don't know if there's stories of earthquakes in, in your oral tradition, but... Um, what uh, you personally and your families I guess there was so much um, focus on just surviving uh, legacies of residential school maybe it hasn't really been the highest priority to think about climate change and stuff like that but recently Mm -hmm. are you noticing that that's coming up when you're you know at gatherings at the community or anything like that um it's not but there has been like online like um, a lot of indigenous people are on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of like our gathering place in a way. Um, so there's people like we really need to have like emergency planning, but um, there's not a lot of people. Like there are people who are re- there's like people who are very concerned about it, but there's not a lot of people. Like mm-hmm. there's like a couple people in Skokomish, there's a couple people in Hussainich, like mm-hmm. that I see and who are really concerned about it. But I'm. I'm kind of like my aunt where I'm like, do I want to survive? And like, but, <laughs> like, but uh, like kind of going back to what I talked about before, like I just need to survive emotionally. That's kind of what I've been mostly focused on. Mm-hmm. Like I need to like not have this rage that, you know, I might have to be saved by a white person while I'm like, if this, if some sort of flood comes, like right. I have to be able to be like, okay, I can trust you. Like, that's the healing I've been doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. But to, like, continue on the thing with, like, language, like, Mm -hmm. um, the language does come from the land, and um, learning language um, has been, I guess, a way of, like, adapting, too, because um I need to, like, if I'm going to survive some sort of catastrophe, um, the best way that my people have taught me how is to know how to speak to the the land, mm-hmm. the plants. The plants have prayer names. The salmon have prayer names. Mm-hmm. Um, the prayer wind, names like you would address them differently in a prayer than if you were hunting them for instance kind of thing okay. well no you would be praying to them while you hunt while so hunt. okay um that's yeah that's a very interesting question <laughs> so yeah. like you would have to have a sacred hold of sacredness to an animal to be able to hunt it right so you wouldn't if you're telling a story about how you killed it don't use the prayer name right but if you are like asking it to sacrifice its life for you and like you know, nourish you and your family, you're going to be praying to it. I remember Johnny Rice from uh, Songhees explaining to me, I can't remember the words for it, but he said, well, we have one name if I'm just talking about salmon, but then if I've 
caught this salmon and I'm going to eat it, now the name, which I guess maybe is what you're saying, a prayer name, is now you're my sibling. Like now you're my brother or now you're whatever because I'm taking you into me. I'm taking you into my family. So you're a member of my family now. Mm-hmm. So he, he did explain to me like, oh, no, this is one way of saying salmon, but you wouldn't say it that way in this situation because now you're taking it in. And it's like you have like a holy bond with this with salmon now. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of like a prayer name concept too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's same thing. The word is it does kind of translate to sister or brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, even that story of like the salmon and how it came to us. And this is a story that I've heard in Husetnich and Skholmish, um, of, you know, we were hungry, we were starving. So like today, what we're talking about with collapse is like economic, ecological, mm-hmm. <laughs> everything collapsing. And, you know, in the Bible, it was all the, um, Plagues. The plagues, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's actually one person who considers like colonization is a plague, and mm. I can't disagree. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you no, know, that makes sense. Like the cedars, the way they, when they first got here, how they destroyed cedars, like it did seem intentional to hurt our people, to like hurt our love for something mm. so huge and sacred. Like, mm. you know, people build the Eiffel Tower, and it's like this supposed beautiful thing. It's like, our equivalent, I, I suppose, if you can even compare, would be like an ancient cedar that was thousands, like hundreds of years old, potentially thousands. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I have never seen such old trees. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. But I'm sure they existed. And they used that in Skhotmish to block us out when they were like, we're building a city here, Gastown. Right. This is going to be our city. We're creating these barricades with your cedars mm-hmm. so that you can't come in. Mm-hmm. Um where was I going again? Uh, you oh. were talking about how salmon, the story of how mm-hmm. salmon came to you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and you, before you carry on, when, like, so now we actually have collapse of salmon stocks again. So this story is probably going to be very, anyway, go yeah. 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 And so like, I think what I was saying is like colonization being like a plague and talking about like the collapse started with colonization because mm-hmm. it's like, let's just destroy these ancient cedars like that was a huge loss to us mm-hmm. like we grieved those trees and I heard that in Skotwish I heard that in Hussetnich uh, you know that was like devastating to us mm-hmm. and um, uh, to our to my ancestors I should say um, and so when you're talking about like the adaptation yeah like for the past 150 plus years that's what we've been doing is adapting 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 and I've just been like that so when it comes to like decolonizing myself um um which means like okay I can't just be a little girl who grows up plays video games and becomes a video game developer like I can't Mm -hmm. be that person Mm -hmm. so like which was hard because like I've loved the hell out of video games and I can't because like it actually Anyway, it like so, kills a part of <laughs> your soul. Or something. It's just, it's like actually quite um, video games. Um, they're a great way to escape because, you know, there's a lot of crap going on. Like, mm-hmm. people suck. Um, what's happening in the world sucks. But winning this game 
like trying to figure out this game, I feel like I'm accomplishing something. Mm. But that's all in your head. Mm. Your body is still going through all these triggers. Like mm. you get you get really frustrated when you can't pass a level or pass a game. Like you don't really kind of realize it. Like you know you're frustrated, but like um I don't know what would be the word viscerally, somatically. Like the like the attunement is a little bit cut off, so yeah. you're not noticing these reactions. Yeah, like physiologically it's just you're super stressed. Like at least I was and I was just like, ugh and yeah. like is is unsustainable and probably would have really made me sick. So right. uh, I had to quit playing video games. But um what was I saying before that? Uh well sorry, I lost it too because I was thinking about how you said refuge and healing, right? So you think that video games could be that, but then you realize like, oh no, I have to decolonize myself because if I then go on to become a video game developer then I'm perpetuating this capitalist dream and and disseminating it to everyone else who can't deal with their own trauma and it's like cutting them off more and more from the healing that they need to do to totally feel. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was reading into what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> Am I getting you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that's like, yeah, always what we have to like be like, am I doing this? To escape something or am I doing this to connect to myself and mm-hmm. land or spirit deeper but um let, let can I ask you another question mm-hmm. sorry go ahead I was just gonna try and think of where I was going I was talking about like um colonization being like a plague and how yeah the adaptation that we've been doing or that I've been doing personally um is just like remembering those teachings Mm -hmm. like i'm like how can i apply this teaching how can i apply this teaching how can i apply this teaching um and how it's like it's hard you know if you don't have um somebody guiding you through this it's hard if that connection actually has been damaged Mm -hmm. like you know ancestral have trauma of like sexual abuse to break that bond physical abuse to break that bond brainwashing to break that bond that i've had to break that was instilled in my dna Mm -hmm. you know and no one was there to like help me really understand it like on a one-to-one level Mm -hmm. those teachings were the way that people could help me Mm -hmm. um but um yeah just like the salmon story how does that apply to life right now the flood story how does that apply to life right now um stories about the eagle and the thunderbird and like how can i apply that to life right now Mm -hmm. um how is that a connection to my ancestors like it has to be Mm -hmm. you know i didn't really have a way of like conceptualizing that and applying it to life and i still am trying to figure it out in a lot of ways but um just remembering things that people gave to me like these stories are something they're like they're not physical but it's the it's still a gift mm-hmm. um and i'm really grateful to again those teachers of Skolmish who gave me teachings and the the healers in the community who shared stories and people in my family who maybe they didn't tell me directly but you know we'd get up they'd get up and speak or like they'd be talking around me mm-hmm. like my my dad and his siblings or his cousins um and i was listening like that was my job was to sit there and listen and um and like that was how they learned so you know mm-hmm. that's just how it was mm-hmm. um but um like so when this morning the salmon story was on my mind um 
but also because I, I listened to a podcast recently where a woman, it was really funny because I was listening and the whole time I was like, she's a Pisces, she's a Pisces, she's a Pisces. Um, and she, she started talking about killer whales and, but what she does, she studies like physical body, human movement and all this stuff. She's like, but if, and she's like, when it comes to biology, biology is biology. So if I could like choose something else, I'd want to study whales. I was like, that's so Pisces. Like you gotta be a Pisces. And, um, she was talking about how killer whales, like the mothers, um, are the teachers in the pod. And it's the mother who teaches the babies how to hunt. And it teaches, like, each pod has, like, there's salmon pods and there's, like, seal pods. Mm -hmm. And the seal pods don't eat the salmon and the salmon pods don't eat the seals. And I've told you this before, like, how um, for us as, like, one of my plant knowledge holders in Kusatnich, like, the families had plants that they worked with and they didn't work with the other plants. Like, I feel like that was a way that was a way of sustaining um, the land and that was a way of building relationships among nations because there would be the family in Kusetnich who works with this plant but there's also the Lekwungen people the Lekwungen family who works with that same plant and that's how they would meet probably mm. I imagine you know you get close to a border of the nations and like oh hey you're here and like this is what I like we harvest this plant oh we harvest this plant too okay well let's figure out you know, there's not, I feel the way I was taught about our people were not adversarial, were um, peaceful people, but were protective. Mm -hmm. So I imagine, you know, that interrelation, that understanding of respecting each other's boundaries and being like, okay, well, we don't want to say this is just mine or just yours. Like, how are we going to be here at this place that's in the middle of both of our nations? and um, take care of this spot right here. And I feel like that's how basically what we might call in English treaties were formed between nations. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like, you know, the concept of treaties, like people came here to learn that negotiation. Mm -hmm. You know, of course they were done so poorly. They, they really failed. <laughs> <laughs> but like <laughs> deep down inside, they're like, how can we learn right. to make relationships with people? Right. Like, who are those knowledge holders on the planet? And it's like, oh, the indigenous people of Turtle Island. Like, (laughs) is this how you do it? No, No. you did it really wrong. But, you know, that's like, that's the opportunity of what all of society can learn. Like, oh, they have this knowledge, like, ancestrally, very deeply, deep-rooted in these lands. Like, how can we learn from these people practically but also like spiritually on a spiritual level how can I like take that in mm-hmm. but um yeah, you've described in the past how when you're out on the land there's like places where you might harvest and places where you don't because and and that it's like oh this family in the Lekwungen speaking one of those nations like they're there so maybe they go in the spring and then we go for the second flush in the fall or something like that like there's just some kind of way of figuring out like yeah, we 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 want to manage this sustainably, mm-hmm. and we want to share, and we also like we want to we want to protect it. One of the things that's interesting, though, you've mentioned it a couple times that there's this um, 
orientation towards specialization. Mm -hmm. So like different families really devote themselves to something. So like everybody isn't um, weaving blankets. Everybody isn't making mats. Everybody isn't hunting. Maybe to some degree, but there's this notion of specialization. Whereas I think of myself, I think of my husband Ruben, and we're like total generalists, right? We're like we like learn all of these things, and you know, kind of um, jack of all trades, master of none, you could say, uh, which which has a different kind of place in I think a collapse economy. Like it's good to be handy, it's good to know a lot of things, but I can also see the point that you're making that. Um, there's a, I don't want to say efficiency, but there's a um, quality of care that comes when a family or a group like really are in that kind of relationship. So like you don't have to make your own weaving or something because you know that the best person is doing that job. (laughs) And so you're getting like the best quality out of that. Um, That feels like a really interesting lesson because like uh, I guess it's my last episode I published with John Michael Greer was talking about how in the last several years economically um, capitalism has said yeah specialize like be a video game developer not a web jack of all trades be this very specialist occupation but that in a collapsed society that's less useful because you there's like an economic precarity if there's a collapse in a certain part of the economy and you don't have other skills like you're kind of screwed but when it's land-based instead of like fake world game based (laughs) you know it's there's it's different it's like we can like we kind of need to adapt to getting a little bit closer to yeah what is produced where we live and who's good at that mm-hmm. and if I'm not good at any one thing how can I be useful mm-hmm. to those people mm-hmm. so that they can focus on their work mm-hmm. yeah don't try to grow tomatoes if that's not your specialty let yeah. the person who can grow tomatoes grow it and yeah. grow enough for everybody yeah we're like that with compost like we don't actually have enough space or heat or like a good place in our yard to do compost and I would like we obviously take care of our scraps but like we have to bring in compost to make our garden good but guess what? There's people with like horses and cattle and stuff who can make really awesome compost and it's worth it for us for to sort of move it around. Um, yeah, so I was like continuing continuing on with the train of thought that I was going on with the killer whales when I heard about this through the podcast was that um, the killer whales teach um the the offspring how to hunt and what what's food and what's their food that they they have a relationship with or that they belong to do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and seeing that mirrored to me um by one of the Satanich knowledge keepers about plants um saying that each family had plants that they belonged to um, I feel like that's a resonant. Either it's a resonance from the whales, or we could have actually observed whales living in that way, and even wolves um, living in that way of like, okay, this is this. These are the timber wolves, and these are the coastal wolves. You know, mm-hmm. these are the whales that hunt salmon. These are the whales that hunt seal, and we as people have to do that too mm-hmm. um, here on this land and around these waters 
Um, I keep saying the land, but really we're water people. We live on the salt water here in Coast Salish territory. My Skoltmish ancestors lived on the by the sea, but along rivers and close to glaciers. So that those knowings that we have and how we um, structured our society really do come from quote unquote the land, uh, which I want to call Elanganuk, which is a word I could translate and have recently started translating as like ecosystem mm. because in English even thinking about ecosystem people think of like oh like forests or meadows or whatever but it's like we are a part of the ecosystem therefore when I think of like Elanganok which is usually translated a village I actually am like actually it's more like each ecosystem especially with what I learn about um, Sneetquith, that's where I work, um, is the place of blue, grou- blue grouse, but there's no blue grouse there mm. <laughs> anymore. Um, but how that is a forest ecosystem, it's a coastal Douglas fir ecosystem. And Khjasas, which is literally five minute drive away, is another ecosystem. Mm. It's more Gary Oak like. Um, it's known as the place of maples to some. So, you know, these very short distances away have ecosystems they're villages to us but when you study them Mm. in a colonial concept it's like oh this ecosystem you know what that ecosystem happened to be our village (laughs) (laughs) right right well i'm still going though oh sorry sorry, sorry. so we learned these things from the land and so when i was young and fearing like this collapse that had pre-existed me and would be continuing after in through my adulthood throughout my entire life and that would be what my children inherit i was like okay well learning from the land and the water Mm -hmm. um doing my best to connect to the ancestors somehow because you know i'm just like sitting there like are you guys telling me anything (laughs) like i'm trying to listen and i can't hear you (laughs) and i just hope i'm doing my best Mm -hmm. you know um that that building that connection Again, working through tons of inherited trauma Mm -hmm. to be able to, like, get there. Um, But also, it's like, I couldn't observe animals. The only animals I could observe were my family. Mm. (laughs) You know, because human beings, we are animals, essentially. We forget that. Um, So, my grandmother, she was extremely kind. She was, like, literally an angel, honestly. Like... I, I did a Facebook post the other day. I, like, acknowledge, like, how happy I am when I see my cousins or my aunts and uncles or grand aunts and uncles, like, out living life and being happy, you know? There's a lot of reason to not be happy. Like, look out the sky today. We can't see the sky. There's smoke everywhere, and this is going to be our reality every summer for who knows how long, you know? So just seeing my family be happy and knowing that they've had struggles and I'm just like oh my god I wish I could help you but I'm not the person to help you I'm like way over here um but I hope you're getting the help you need you know those prayers like my grandma always taught us to pray and praying holding hands you know it wasn't about I mean she was catholic and we did pray with our hands together in front of our chest but when she got me and my sisters to pray with her we all held hands Mm -hmm. we sat in circle held hands and prayed Mm -hmm. so just like what did my grandma teach me and 
you know, these stories that were shared with me through a lot of teachers and community, but also, you know, my uncles were those teachers as well to other people. And what they did was go through the band council system and do their best to accomplish things in that way. And I knew that was, I was like, I really appreciate what you, what you have done and what you continue to do. But I know that that way is not going to be effective. You know, that collapsed thinking was there. Mm. Like, being involved in the colonial system is not going to help. Mm. At least not for me. Mm-hmm. Tiffany's the emotional person who needs to cry. Mm-hmm. So Tiffany's going to do that and do that well. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, I know your chart, like, you're a Venus in Virgo. So you're like, I need to get things in order. Mm-hmm. And I'm a Venus in Taurus. So it's like connecting to the land. Mm. Like beauty like mm-hmm. be beautiful that's my inheritance from my grandmother as well it's my inheritance from my father like mm-hmm. be a beautiful person be this soul like mm-hmm. part of that really is like how I'm gonna survive I'm like just be super nice Tiffany and people are gonna take care of you <laughs> and feed true. you it's yeah. true I want to take care of you I'll get everything in order yeah. <laughs> like that's what I'm counting on yeah I'm counting on like being a heart of gold and just like being taken care of because I'm like I'm, like, not useless, but I'm next to it. (laughs) No, that's not true. No, yeah. Well, you have also other areas of specialization that still work with one foot in both worlds. Like, you could do astrology charts for everybody and help them know how they're going to get through collapse. Yeah. Through these next few transits. Just feed me. That's all I need. That's Like, I'll counsel you all you want. Just feed me and these kids. And my kids. Really feed those kids. They matter more than me. Like, if they're not fed, I'll be so worried. But I can't feed them, so please feed them. So that reminds me again of the story of the salmon because um, you said because our people were hungry so there was some this is relevant for us now because salmon stocks collapse but would you be willing to share what you can from the story of the salmon? Like what is that story? What what can I learn from the salmon story? Yeah and yeah like this is you know again reinforcing that connection to land and water and animals ecosystem um for me and the way i think anyway um there was a time when our people were experiencing famine and we just didn't have enough food so there was people who went out on a canoe and uh, paddled to the island of the salmon and um i remember when i was hearing this story that there was like just black surrounded the the island and they didn't really know what that was um they were like it could have been because there were so many longhouses there that they were burning so much fires that the smoke went up and landed in the water like that's how big that village was um but they had to paddle through this black water and they arrived on the shores and basically asked permission to be there um in their territory and explained you know like we're we're suffering we're hungry and we were coming to you to ask for help and then what the salmon people said was that they would um that they would help but they're like you have to stay here and feast with us first so they were there and i just remember like you know going through that like oh my god they were like so hungry Mm. you know and they get there and they're like will feed you and like how they must have been like thank you know mm-hmm. thank the creator we're going to eat but also like I really we really need to feed our people back home and like mm-hmm. that that feeling of like 
it must have been so like I don't know, polarizing maybe of like being like we finally got somewhere and we're gonna get to eat but oh my god everyone's suffering back home there's yeah there's definitely some emotional tension there like between guilt and also but this is what we have to do to get them to help us so okay <laughs> so they get invited to eat and feast um and then they're given some rules they're like okay we're gonna serve you salmon but you have to put every single bone back. You cannot forget, leave any bones behind. So everybody would eat and somebody would come around and collect the bones. And they did that probably for four nights. And then one night somebody was like, I just wanna see what's gonna happen. What happens if I hide a bone? So the person came around again with all the to collect all the bones and this person hid a piece of bone and um, I think everyone went to sleep and I, everyone was woken up and they're like what did you do and everyone comes together and then a child comes forward and they're missing half of their face because that was these bones were literally these people this village of salmon people it was literally their bodies that they were feeding to the people mm -hmm. and by not returning the bones you were not allowing them to reincarnate basically right regenerate back into this human form that they had met them in mm -hmm. and so um the the version that that was like published was like and so you know they they scolded him for doing that but um i'm pretty sure they killed that person for doing that for mm -hmm. not following the rules mm -hmm. And, um, but that is why, like, we, when I was growing up, we were taught it was so important to place every bone from salmon that you received, like, put it back into the river, back in, well, yeah, in Skhotmish, like, we put it into the river because we're river people. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, that practice is not, you know, if somebody's going out and getting sushi, <laughs> those salmon bones aren't going back into the, into the water. So, you know, that's our spiritual and our cultural belief, like, that's why the salmon stocks aren't... Because mm, we're not replenishing the ecosystem with the nutrients and care and, and returning to the cycle. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? But also, like, those salmon don't get a chance to find home again. Mm. Yeah. We know how salmon cycles are now, right? Yeah. Like, they go globally. Yeah. And we've also cut off their rivers. Like, we've changed their rivers. Right. Um, so, you know, I know people who do... Um, restoration work of the Senate, uh, sorry, Squamish. <laughs> so many languages in my mouth right now. Uh, the Squamish River watershed, you know, and they're rep like repairing that river so that salmon can go up that river again. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's been lots of work for years and years, and it's all about getting the money for that, and um, I'm going to have a drink of tea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that sounds good. Um, you know, and I, it makes me wonder. I'm like, do I believe in this scientifically or do I and rationally or do I believe this spiritually like what are we supposed to do like I know that I feel it's extremely important to bring the bones back I feel that there's that is something that human beings need to do mm -hmm. um, that there is a spiritual existing thing that needs to happen so that those it's literally their bones in their lives and that's why they're not coming back because it's like mm -hmm. where's my body mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but also like um, 
of course, there's like the scientific thing of like the bones disintegrating, replenishing, and providing nutrients to the water. Um, and also like our relationship to salmon as Coast Salish people. So, you know, when I was a kid, I had like a very like disturbed reaction the very first time I heard of like what milk, cow's milk was. I was like, that's cow's milk. Mm. That that was supposed to be for a calf mm. and yet we're drinking it. It doesn't make sense to me. I was like, mom, why are we doing this? Mm. Teachers, why are you telling me that this is necessary for my health? Mm. I thought it was weird. Instantly. Mm. Same with honey. Like, they're like, I'm like, what is that? And like, it's from bees. How do they make it? It's bee puke. <laughs> Who decided to get bee puke? Mm. You know, I'm sure though, like I have this story of salmon that I can connect to. I imagine that there was a point where people were hungry and like needed food and they're like, go to the bee and ask them to help you. Mm -hmm. Go to the cow and ask them to help you. And there's people who have deep, deep, deep ancestral relationship to cows. Mm -hmm. And there's people who have deep, deep, deep ancestral relationship to honey or to bees honeybees mm -hmm. I personally don't so I still think it's kind of weird like I, I just had honey in my tea but I'm just like I'm doing this I because I just hope somebody has a good story about honeybees somewhere <laughs> I hope they do okay so great segue Tiffany <laughs> can you tell the story of Samsamaya um I can but did I finish my last thought is the question first um the salmon you know we have this relationship so my question that I'm sitting with is, do we stop eating salmon so that the killer whales can have that food? Mm. Or is it we have to repair that relationship with salmon so that, like, we... I think there's people who need to eat honey. Mm. I think there's people who need to drink milk. I'm not those people, but... Am I a person who needs to eat salmon? And is that part of the ecosystem and the relationship between human beings, salmon, and killer whales? Mm. And, of course, there's the ecological protection that needs to happen. Um, you know, like repairing rivers and streams so that salmon can uh, spawn in those places. Like, I believe in that. Obviously, I do land restoration work. But, they're, like, spiritually, am I supposed to be eating salmon and returning their bones so that you know, for future generations, mm -hmm. they're going to have salmon? Mm -hmm. Or am I supposed to do this at least to strengthen myself for when they're gone forever? Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, I have that, I'll build that ancestral connection and bond to the land and the water so that one day whatever happens, like, you know, Tiffany's seventh generation descendant remembers the that relationship with salmon and however that manifests of like it might not be salmon again it might be something else mm -hmm. what I'm doing now is in my life is educating people about pollinators mm -hmm. because all the education about pollinators is going to help people take care of land mm -hmm. so when forest fires happen there's a reforestation planning uh, planting plan that people can follow I can't remember the person's name that uh, my teacher referenced. Uh, my teacher in terms of like land restoration is Judith Lynn Arney. Um, I lear I've learned so much about Sneakwith and Zihuang, which are two places where she's done land restoration work. Um, Would I recognize those places if you said their name in English? Yeah. Um, 
uh, Sneedquist is Todd Inlet, uh-huh. um, right where the creek is. Mm-hmm. That was one thing I wanted to mention too. Like when I talk about land and water, mm-hmm. like and language coming from the land and water. Like our first village is Sneedquist, and the first creek that we would have had a relationship with is Huachacha. And that's literally the description of how the creek sounds. Right. <laughs> um, so when land, when I say language comes from land, like you literally hear it in the onomatopoeia of the way we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that you just use the word onomatopoeia. It's like one of the best English language words ever. So thank you. I like the way you said it. Even. So good. Yeah. You just drop it. Add another word in there. It's so good. <laughs> Um, and what what was the other? Oh, sorry, it was Todd Inlet. Yeah, and Tijon, which is like close to like where Island View Beach is, but it's the oh. reserve side. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that place, when I talked about like ecosystems, like that place has like over a dozen ecosystem things within it, which is wow. like I was just like, <gasps> wow. You know, yeah. talk about diversity. Totally. Okay, so now Tiffany, talk about pollinators. <laughs> so. Um, I wrote a story about a bee because, you know, if we take care of pollinators, especially the indigenous pollinators, all of that is going to do help people connect to land again, but also um, realize by like, oh, we need to like take care of these pollinators because they pollinate our food and they'll learn a lot more from the land from these pollinators because they're gonna they're gonna be like oh these flowers are so beautiful this is when they flower and when those flowers die back these ones flower like the succession planting and again beauty Mm -hmm. right like human beings were not the most intelligent you know (laughs) we're like when it comes to pollinators the most highly studied are butterflies why because they're beautiful Mm -hmm. so all i can do is bring beauty into the world and be beautiful um to like help people like hey aren't these butterflies and bees so amazing like yeah and like tiffany your voice is sweet like honey like i know but also do you want to learn about these pollinators (laughs) i'm totally signed up signed up and it's kind of like it's a bit of a um like it's messing my mind a little bit that this has all been totally intentional I feel kind of worked over but it feels so good that I'm like okay Tiffany (laughs) I've been charmed go ahead yeah exactly I mean that it's 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 what I had go like yeah actually if you consider where I came from like before this it's like okay, your gesture right now. You're like this, this right here that you're looking at. That's so beautiful. I love it. Yeah, I mean it's a miracle. You're a miracle. You're radiantly miraculous. I say that with like no jest. Yeah, you are a radiant person, so it's working. It's been my goal. Like it's what I was just like. I don't know. Like I'm good at a lot of things, but I, no one appreciates those things. Like just be pretty. Well, it's not pretty. It's beauty, which is different. It is. Beauty has, uh, I think it was like Isabel Rossellini or somebody who said, uh, beauty is much closer to ugly than it is to pretty because it is about truth. 
I, I think I and I added the it's about truth part. But I think that's what she meant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because she is a chip tooth and she's a supermodel. Yeah. So I think that was her point was like, this is really who I am. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's something about that that's so beautiful. So yeah, you're not just pretty. Yeah. And I'm actually not just pretty because like I don't wear makeup. I don't do anything to like my hair. To be and, pretty. Like, yeah. I don't do yeah. anything. Like I just was like, just find the beauty yeah. within myself yeah. and also in others yeah. and in nature. Mm-hmm. Like the polity, I like, you know, I, I said this, like, I look at bees the way people look at dogs and cats. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just like, look at the bees, so cute. Hey, I read the other day that you actually can pet bumblebees and there was this big fat one on a dahlia the other day. And of course, um, bumblebees usually get knocked out in a dahlia. Like they just are totally intoxicated and they just kind of like nap there. And I so wanted to reach out and pet it, but I was like, oh, that wouldn't be good. Like it might get mad at me or whatever. But then I read the day after that you actually can potentially, uh, that they, a bumblebee may allow you to pet them. But a, a teacher of mine said, you know you're in danger of violating consent when you really, really want something, when you love it that much. So I have not reached out and touched a bumblebee yet, but like, I totally feel you on the like, it's a gift. I just want to touch it. Again, yeah. like, it's beauty. You're like, yeah. hopefully I can look like a flower and it's going to land like on my shoulder or my hand or my face. And I'm just like, hi. <laughs> a little petting it. Totally. <laughs> like, it chose you. Okay, so uh, before you tell the story of Samsumaya, I had been thinking about how, again, the previous guest, the Archdruid, John Michael Greer, said, in catabolic collapse, it's more like a stair step. So it's like crisis, calm, crisis, calm, crisis, calm. And in the calm periods, it might even be a whole generation where things actually seem like they're getting better. Um, But it's actually, when you step back and look at the pattern, it's only a partial recovery. And so you have this partial recovery, but then another crisis happens. And so it's like ever lower rates of integration of everything that's been lost. And so at some point, yeah, Tiffany's seventh generation, the the stories may be lost, but you're hoping that in um, a supportive cultural environment and, and natural environment that it allows certain genes to express so that that epigenetic intergenerational like those qualities something turns on and maybe it's a different species of salmon you know maybe it's you know but but something turns on but somewhere along the way new stories have to be crafted so you wrote this story. How much of it is new and how much of it is based on things that you might have known? There's some details in this story that I was like, oh, did they have like polyamorous relationships or like multiple wives? Like, which nation is that? Like, I had all these questions and then I had to stop and be like, this is, this is new. This is like inspired by historical events, but it's like creative nonfiction or whatever they call that. So could you kind of set up a little bit your story about um, the bee? So <clears throat> I went to, I was a part of a pollinator workshop. Sorry, I'm also aware of the time. Time. It's 12.30. 12.30. Okay. Just, I'll try. Do it quick. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. 
Um, I did. I was a part of a two-day pollinator workshop. So it was like two eight-hour-long days, pretty much, of like learning about pollinators from a uh, pollinator researcher, basically bee researcher, uh, Dr. Laura Morandin, and um, made possible by Habitat Acquisitions Trust um, and the Pollinator Partnership of Vancouver Island. Um, we have a, um, a group of folks called the Island Pollinator Initiative, IPI. Um, so they hosted this workshop. I was, I don't know if I was like expressly invited. There was like, you can potentially be a part of it if, you know, you apply in time or something like that. And there was, so it's like for land managers. So there's people who work for different municipalities, um, all the way up to Nanaimo. There was, um, indigenous folks who, um, have, are growing gardens to feed their communities. There's uh, my friend Bianca Elliott, who has Project Reclaim, she was there. She does, um, she's planting food gardens um, to reclaim our land from basically invasive species <laughs> within our own village um, of Kuchasasp um, and other things. But um, so in this pollinator workshop, I'm listening to the story, I'm like, oh my god, like we had to have learned so much from the bee. If not, you know, they learned it from somewhere else, but, like, the bee tells this story so well. Um, and I was just, like, I, I honestly, I swear to God, I must have been looking around, like, do you guys hear the story? Yeah. <laughs> Are you hearing this? Do you Everybody hear the else story? is, like, watching the slides go by, but you're, like, can you hear the story? It's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and if you learn anything about bees, like, they're all very feminine-focused. Like, it's very matriarchal. Like, even the honeybees, you know, there's a queen bee. Um, there's no honeybees original to Turtle Island. So that's from Europe, Asia, Africa. Um, so it makes sense if you think about like their structures in their societies. Um, what's um, indigenous to Turtle Island are the solitary bees and bumblebees. There are some bumblebees, but they are at risk here. There's a... Um, Bombus Occidentalis. Like, Bombus, isn't that such a cute scientific name? Bombus. <laughs> Make way. Bombus is here. <laughs> um, you know, so the Western, I believe it's called, like, the Western bumblebee is, like, at risk. So I'm just like, we need to plant flowers for it. Um, um, so we do have uh, bumblebees, but majority of Turtle Island is the solitary bees. And the solitary bees are bees that um, basically the the female bee will pollinate. She pollinates, but she, so basically she goes, gathers pollen to make pollen sacs for the eggs that she lays. And she also gathers nectar to feed herself, but um, likely the, the eggs as well. Um, so, well, she eats the nectar to nourish herself, which makes her a great... Um, creator of the eggs the pollen sacs are there to like when they emerge from their egg they have this food um so that's their life they pollinate they also mate um and they make the nests however the male bees have absolutely nothing to do with the nests and then with my matriarchal thinking i'm just like that's genius because when they get in the way they mess things up (laughs) they also can attract you know like more um, violence, you know, mm-hmm. like because the masculine, the males, like territorial and like 
aggressive. So it's like, don't come around here, mm-hmm. like, because then you'll just bring that violence here and you could damage my nest. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other things in terms of nests and like um, parasitic bees that mm-hmm. could talk about another time. But basically, yeah, it's like these females, these women, let's just call them women. These women are making nests and that's their life. Like, I'm just making this nest, making this nest, making this nest. Got to hook up with that male bee every once in a while to, like, get what I need. Um, And the male bees are just like, we'll just hang out with the flowers. Like, we got you, girl, over here. But we'll just leave the nest alone. Mm. Um, And I was just like, and, you know, I see that within my culture a lot of the times. Like, just let the women do it because you'll just get in the way and mess it up. Or, like, you better listen and listen well because you're just going to mess things up if you don't listen well. Mm. Um... And it's really funny because, like, you know, I feel like I carry that masculine and feminine pretty strongly within me. So I'd be like, okay, whenever women tell me what to do, I'm just going to listen and try not to mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best way I can do my job. Right. And, um, yeah, so I, like, saw this story emerging from from the information I was getting about the bees and also yeah there was like non-monogamous there's polyamorous relationships the way it's told like for my life it was that like these men um are like cm that's our word for like highly respected people um so a hunt a mountain goat hunter or a deer hunter or a bear hunter um you know they they would earn themselves with such a reputation and be such good providers that it's like okay you get another wife Mm. and then i was like and then somebody at some point in my life was like, you know, it does. there's nothing to say that the women didn't help earn that wife too. Like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, like we talk about, we've definitely talked about like how women are weavers and would be well known for being cedar weavers or wool weavers. And like, that's the story we hear about women. And I was like, you know what, they actually could have basically quote-unquote earned this this right in our society to have another spouse. Yeah, okay, like, I, just as you said that the first time, I was like, oh, wait a second, because especially if you have kids, it would be so freaking helpful to have another wife around but not necessarily another dad, right? So it's like, okay, you're a really great provider, you're gone on the hunt a lot or like you know because it's big game hunting it means it's just a much larger um it's a different kind of time commitment than say salmon let's say uh so you're gone a lot but that doesn't mean that i don't have to like i have a lot of stuff i've got to do here it would be nice to have a helper so you know the wife the first wife is probably yeah doing all of the raising and the gathering and the weaving and all this stuff but then that becomes um, su- like support for him to do his work and if she does that well then yeah you could earn another wife like a sister wife that would be <laughs> like as you're describing it I'm like oh my god that would be so awesome <laughs> like, I see this now as like a, I guess I'm just seeing it less patriarchally and more from a matriarchal perspective that like yeah quote unquote earning another wife would be very cool yeah it's like you Especially if you get to choose. You could, like, make friends. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of, that's kind of, like, detailed in a bit in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, like, you know, I'm talking about Kachatla, who's, like, I named the the second wife Kachatla, which is the word for spider, uh, because she 
is the person who taught um, our people to weave. Mm. Um, so that's why in the story I do my best to like share that she teaches weaving, but I also, she's a hunter um, because spiders, I very much consider them hunters. And also like in our society, everyone was like, you know, you talked about being a generalist, like everyone was a generalist. Um, but there definitely was specialists and it was like, be a generalist, but also find your specialty. Mm. Um, because, or, you know, you know, I was just like, I'll just find my specialty right now. But you know, I, I, I do have skills. I shouldn't like, you yeah, know, a lot of skills. <laughs> yeah. no, I like that description. Like you, yes, you are a generalist and having your specialty is a very useful mm-hmm. thing to have. You yeah. can switch gears really easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, I'll take on that masculine energy right now and just be like, I let the women tell me what to do and I follow. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of how I handle my generalist role. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'll be uh-huh. a good, mm-hmm. I'll be, I won't get in your way, but mm-hmm. I just really want to help you get what you need to get done. I'm enjoying this worldview. <laughs> like, I can totally sign up for this. This sounds kind of like my life. I like it. <laughs> so, okay, so can you share with the listeners, like, a, a brief, the brief version mm-hmm. of Samsonite? I'll try to off the top of my head. So uh, one day there was a girl named Samsamaya and she was raised by her family to love the land which she came from. She, they taught her how to use all the plants as medicines and dyes um, and as tools. Uh, she loved making tule mats and horsetail mats which were used to create shelter when people would go out camping, but it was also used to keep houses warm, the longhouses warm. Um, so people, and there was, it was used to create comfort. Mm. And when women were pregnant, she liked being able to be, um, be there to support them, but also create medicines for them in this time of transitioning from, um, transitioning into the life-giving role, the caregiver role. She liked being able to be there to support them. And she absolutely loved berries. And so she would, when she was out on the land, she'd go acknowledge every flower and every burying plant and the flowers that created them. Uh, Because her people taught her, her family taught her how to, that it was important to acknowledge all the everything around you and at one point after helping so many women through their pregnancies every once in a while she'd get a little baby fever and as she got older she'd get more baby fever and of course the people around her would be like you would make such a great mother you're gonna make such beautiful babies won't it be great when you can find like a good partner to make these beautiful babies with and she's like yeah but I really love my land and when I get married I have to leave here I have to go live with him so if I'm gonna go live with him like I can't how am I gonna part ways with my land and you know her baby fever got ramped up again and everyone's like okay we're gonna find you somebody and she's like okay fine like she the only thing she could imagine loving more than her land was having her own baby so she said okay like i'll meet these men and um the first first man 
comes and she's like, do you have my absolute favorite plant in your territory? I love the camas. Do you have any camas? And he says, no. And she's like, I can't marry you. And so the second guy comes along. He's like, we have camas. And she's like, okay. Um, do you have my second favorite plant? We have snowberry. That's my second favorite plant. And he's like, yeah, we do. And we eat it. And she's like, ugh, we don't eat snowberry here. Like, you can't poison my children. I can't marry you. And the third third man comes. He's like, we have cannabis and we have snowberry. And I use snowberry to poison the tips of my arrows so that when I am in war, it's a poison. And she's like, okay, uh, I can be with you. And, you know, she's like, oh, my God, I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> and so she goes to live with this man, and he already has a wife. Um, sorry, I should mention the wedding first. So she chooses this man. She's excited that she's going to uh, make a baby. They get married in a field of cannabis. And when she moves to to his territory, to his village, he already has another wife, and the wife's name is Kachatla. Kachatla is a master weaver, and she's an incredible hunter. And Samsamaya and Kachatla, they spend a lot of time together. Uh, their husband is not around very often. He's out doing hunting and fishing and stuff like that. And Samsamaya gets to learn how to hunt from Kachatla uh, because there's things that you can hunt that are, you know, smaller um, on the kind of like day-to-day type things. And she learns how to weave from Kachatla. And she shares how she weaves with her tule mats and blankets. And they form a really good bond and a good rapport with one another. And at one point, um, you know, Samsamaya is pregnant and she's realizing like my life here is going to be I'm not going to have much of a relationship with my husband I'm going to have a great relationship with Kachatla but this isn't how I want to live I want to go back home like where all that support and love that I want in my life you know I have that I want to raise my baby there so she leaves um, and before she leaves, she trades some tule and horsetail mats for Kachatla's um, wool and cedar woven blankets. So she has all this warmth for her to take home um, to be home with uh, while she's growing this baby inside. So she returns home and she has all this, all her blankets and mats and she's getting ready because it's the winter time. Uh, when it's winter time, you can't, go out on the, you can't go out on the waters, you can't go out and harvest anymore. This is the time to really like take care of yourself and um, be, uh, be in our uh, spiritual ceremonies. So she's really prepared to like for this downtime. And um, so, the thing is, is like she makes these mats, right? But not everyone else was getting prepared. So she's like, you know what? I'll give you mats. Um, I have more than enough. But like, please just like give me my space. Like I, I just need time to myself. Like I've worked so hard in the spring and the summer and the fall. 
I, I need my me time so I could take care of me because it takes a lot of work to make all those mats and people really need them when they go on their hunting trips and she knows that the community needs those hunters to go out and do their work um, but with her being so strong and being able to do that she really needs that time to take care of herself so that she can give um, continue to give in a good way because we always believe you have to do things with a good heart and good mind so she takes the winter time to like grieve and you know she you know reflect would reflect on the year and realize the things that the hurts that she had experienced throughout the year and she would take the time to cry so she would use the snowberries she would make an infusion and just wash herself with the snowberry infusion and while she's growing this baby and going through these emotions she would just um, if she's getting a bit too emotional she'd start humming songs you know um, and she would talk to her baby and say she would also be reflecting on the good times of like how beautiful the flowers were and she's like you know baby <laughs> I feel like no one sees the world as beautifully as I do I hope you have eyes just like me and um by Cheots, the creator, seeing Samsamaya live her life in this way with all this love for her land and being really good about acknowledging the land and taking care of other people and knowing what she's, what she's here to do, he turned her into the bee. And so that's what the bee can teach us, is the love of land and also taking care of other people, but also taking care of yourself. And... Um, the way we honor the bee is to plant the flowers that she would have loved the most, which are the camas and the snowberry. Good story. <laughs> and it's going to, well, it has since I first heard it a couple months ago, uh, change the relationship I have with the big patch of snowberry in the front of my yard, which I told you in the past, I've been like trying to, as you say, like decolonize my mind that like this is their land it, they thrive here and so the fact that they are uh, encroaching on my lavender is like a pretty good metaphor I need to just relax about that uh, but I also love that um, not everybody uses soap berry in the same way so I often see like interior like uh, recipes for oh, like snowberry oh snowberry yeah Sorry, what did I say? You said soapberry. Soapberry, sorry, snowberry. Mm -hmm. um, but that not that the one that they'll sometimes like whip up? And that's soapberry that gets whipped up. That's soapberry, okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Snowberry, um, yeah. I don't know if any... I I did see somebody like on the news say they ate it. I was like, <gasps> yeah. oh my God, where are they from? Like, should my children procreate with them? I'm not sure. Like, should I be mindful of that? Like, that's dangerous. <laughs> But some people would eat it. I think some people, yeah. Like, it's, um, there's, like, maybe in small amounts. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure, like, if you ate too much of it, like, any human being mm -hmm. would, like, not. Yeah. Okay. It's it's a paralytic in, in like I said, it was used wow. to um, help paralyze people. But, you know, it has to puncture into your muscle to mm. be able to, like, I don't know if it was a paralytic or if it was kind of, like, spastic or something like right. that. You know, wow. but it would definitely harm people's muscles it's but it's good to know the story of mm -hmm. like okay so people use this in different ways and this is how the folks from the land that i live on 
this is traditionally how this would be handled. We could use this in ceremony, or we could use this as a paralytic, or if we so choose. Um, but that's, I've really appreciated having that little bit of knowledge because I feel like my relationship, it shifts my relationship for sure once I know something about this plant and what it, how to express its selfness, you know, its itness. So, last question then. Um, you talked about beauty as one of the ways that you um, seek joy and create love in the world, um, even in such dire times. Uh, what are a few of the things that you are finding the most beautiful and joyful? How are you cultivating beauty specifically in your life? Well, writing the bee story is like one of them. Um, and just being really sharing. Um, I think uh, a lot of people, indigenous people to Turtle Island, uh, indigenous people to what we know as India, you know, South Asia, you know, these are people who have lots of medicines that are used today by a lot of people. Um, we are like, we're very protective. We want to be very protective of our medicines and like really call to attention like, hey, we're living in third world situations and you are making a multi-million dollar corporation off of this medicine that you learned from us like can there be some you know resource sharing there you know or giving back to the people from whom you took Mm -hmm. um but it's really hard to like when i've if i get too conscious of like what i'm sharing then i i get i get hurt like it hurts my heart i'm just like I'm supposed to share. I know that the colonizers are take, 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 but I can't change who I am. Like, I can't change how I was raised. Like, it's in my soul to give. Therefore, I must create. So, I'm going to create a story about a bee that I can share. Mm. You know, there's other stories that I definitely can't share. So, it's like, create things that you can share. Mm. I mentioned, like, I've been thinking about seagulls lately and how um, I don't think they're probably appreciated by a lot of people, but this is our karma you know this is these are the consequences of like you killed all the other birds with your colonization this is the bird we have and this is a bird that i can connect with no matter where i go so i should create a seagull song so i want to do that it hasn't quite come to me yet or maybe it has i don't know because yeah they they acknowledge me now. they're acknowledging me more um but also um yeah, I just want to be able to create things that I can share because they come from me um, and being mindful of like, okay, where does this come from if there is other knowledge and like how can I share it in a way that I'm still protecting mm-hmm. the land and the medicines because, you know, people have learned about stinging nettle like, oh, stinging nettle, I'm just going to go clear out a whole patch of stinging nettle because it's medicine. And she's like, that's not how indigenous people harvest. Mm-hmm. We harvest only 20% of something. or mm-hmm. And even then, it's like the Gary Oak ecosystem itself is like 5% of what it was prior to colonization. Right. So it's like 20% of what? Right. Um, so, um, yeah, just I'm like, okay, plant flowers because people are attracted to beauty (laughs) that's like my goal and like you know putting that idea out there um and creating i want to create a resource so that people can like i'm like okay these are the this is a seed mix that you can create or we can create together to spread around a bit 
because there's so many patches of grass that are like it's great now the city of victoria is not watering the grass over the summer mm. like thank you city of victoria mm. but did you know that there's some flowers out there that are drought tolerant and mm. could look really amazing and beautiful if you just didn't kill them in the first place like <laughs> first of all but second of all like maybe we should just plant them again mm-hmm. and maybe people will be like oh this place is beautiful it's not a desert you know <laughs> in the summertime it's lush mm-hmm. we come from a lush place and uh, the reason people don't see that is because they're trying to make colonial plants mm-hmm. exist in a in Coast Salish territory it's like right. if you planted the Coast Salish plants they would be ground green right now and they'd be flowering right now you know like uh, so just doing that and it does come from love you know like that's the thing like there's I I've been taught not to be spiteful um, I definitely have moments of feeling spite but like I don't that's not how I want to carry out the work I do mm-hmm. and uh, I think all like people of all backgrounds really struggle with that be they white or person of color or indigenous person like how can you have how can you like justify not being angry mm-hmm. and I'm like how they taught me Mm. that's what the land taught my people so i'm trying to like create a world where that doesn't that's how we carry ourselves like Mm. we take that time to take care of ourselves in the winter time Mm. because there are hard feelings that we experience that but we still have to have that joy in how we carry ourselves but we still need to take time to take care of you know the grief the rage the anger Mm -hmm. like those are valid feelings but you just don't take that onto your work Mm. we also had cultural practices as like you know what you're not going to cook you're in grief for four years you're in grief Mm. so you won't cook we're going to cook for you Mm. like not only did we encourage people to take time to take care of themselves we were like hey it's our job to take care of you Mm. so that's why she takes care of people (laughs) you know because it's like and also you know from strong women that I know it's like there's so much care given and it's really hard when you're a strong woman to let anyone take care of you. So I was like, just let me be alone so I can take care of myself because <laughs> I don't know if you're strong enough for this. Oh, yes. Oh, God. Yes. You're speaking truth. As always, Tiffany, speaking truth and like arrow landing deep in my heart right now. Uh, once again, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and your um Yeah, stories new and old. Really appreciate that. Thank you. I'd like to thank Tiffany for sharing these stories with us today. If you'd like to read the published version of the story of Sensamaya and perhaps share it with your kids or classrooms, check out the show notes on my podcast page on my website. And that's also where you'll find detailed information for this fall's retreat at Hollyhock. For all of that and more, go to carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N. S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.